Welcome to the Citizens Youth Sermon Podcast. We are a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church and a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit nwgospel.com slash citizens. How we doing tonight? Woo! Good to be with you guys. My name is Noah. I help lead this thing which is happening. If you're brand new tonight, I'm super glad that you joined us. We are Citizens Youth, and we love a few different things. We love meeting together every week. We love singing, and we love opening up God's Word. And um, I was talking to somebody once, and I was ta- which I do because I talk to people, right? You know how you talk to people? So I was doing that once. I was talking to somebody, um, I think it was like in the grocery store, and I don't know if you know this, but like, Pastors and ministry leaders are like really awkward sometimes. I don't know if you've, if you've had a conversation with me, you know that that's just the case. And uh, for whatever reason, there was a moment where like pastors kind of have like this sixth sense, like they know when someone else is also in ministry. You're just like, I bet that is a pastor or a leader or someone who serves in ministry. And so I was talking to somebody and um, in, it was like, it was like Safeway or somewhere where I like kind of recognized them. They kind of recognized me and we both went up to each other and we're like, are you in ministry? Yeah, you're in ministry. Cool. You're, you're socially awkward too? Yeah, me too. Sweet. So we talked for a little bit and uh, they're like, where are you at? And I was like, I am at Northwest Gospel Church. Been there for like two and a half years. Love it. It's awesome. And he was like, man, I like, I've heard about your church and you guys love the Bible. And I was like, yes, we do. So that's a pretty good thing to be known for. Um, it's a pretty good thing to have like a reputation around town. Like you guys certainly love the Bible. And uh, we do here as well. We believe that um, God's word contains everything that you and I need for life and godliness. Everything. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us how to build spaceships. No shocker there. It's a very old, ancient text. But everything that you and I need for life, to live a life that honors the Lord, and to live a godly life is found in these pages of scripture. How many books are in the Bible? Pop quiz. Say it out loud. 66, correct. If you're not Catholic, that's correct. Uh, I'm not getting into that. Just throw that away. If you didn't know that, we'll talk later. Uh, 66 books in the Protestant Bible. 66 books in the original languages in the Bible um, that we have manuscripts of. Or not all manuscripts. Never mind. I'm getting into it. Blah, blah, blah. Um, 66 books in the Bible. And we believe every single um, page of Scripture contains vital information that we need for life and godliness. Um, you know, Jesus says that he did not come to this earth to abolish the law or the prophets, which we can see as everything pertaining to scriptures before Jesus arrived. Jesus says, hey, I didn't come to abolish all those things. In fact, every single dot, every single iota, every single thing is important. Uh, Jesus professes that. The savior of the world, the only perfect person to ever walk on this earth, says not a single dot or iota shall pass away from this law. 
And he didn't come to abolish it. He didn't come to throw it out. We like to say that he did. We kind of functionally pretend like Jesus said the exact opposite of what he says. But he says, no, I came not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so as we were praying about where we want to go in this season, um, I was, my heart was set on the Old Testament. I wanted to bring us through a passage of scripture from the Old Testament. Um, and so open up your Bibles to the book of Micah. We can throw up this uh, slide on the screen. Um, we're going to be in the book of Micah for a few weeks. And the prophet Micah contains some of the most surprising words of scripture that I've read. And I've read a lot of the Bible. And this has just been awesome for me to dive into this book. And we're calling it Hope in Chaos, because that's really what's happening here in this book. Uh, the prophet Micah ministered over the course of nearly 70 years, from 749 BC to 684 BC. We know that because that is when the ministry of the kings or the ruling of these kings that we read about in verse 1 um, are happening. So over 70 years, a man named Micah prophesied to the people of God. He's prophesying at the exact same time as other, this other guy called Isaiah. Isaiah got a way bigger book, but Micah's like, you know what? These are just the hits. Put it all down, seven chapters, that's it. And Isaiah's kind of going on and on. But they're prophesying at the exact same time. And um, in the midst of a chaotic world, Micah is preaching hope. There will be hope at the end of these dark days. Look ahead, there is something that is coming that is going to make all of this chaos make sense. That's what the book of Micah is all about. Let's read verse one together. Chapter one, verse one, we're gonna be in this for a few weeks and this is where it all begins. This is God's word. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morseth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Many of us read verse one of chapter one and think, meh, I already can't say like six of those names. Like, I already am having trouble with this. Um, is this really gonna help me like with my life? Uh, is this really something worth following, Jesus says not a single word is insignificant from all 66 books of the Bible. Jesus says all of it is valuable. He quotes the Old Testament dozens, dozens of times with authority. He fulfills dozens and hundreds of prophecies from these books, so it is very important. Why study Old Testament prophecy? Um, because the Bible's one unified story that leads to Christ. Um, the Bible is one unified story. Why study Old Testament prophecy? Uh, Jesus loved the Old Testament. He quotes it many times. Why study Old Testament prophecy? The more and more and more we read these words, the more we get a glimpse into what was happening at the time, the more and more that you and I might see that we're not so different as people than those that are being prophesied against. We're not so different human beings than we were 2,700 years ago. We all have a condition called sin, and it expresses itself in many ways, right? We all sin and stumble in many different ways, but the root problem has always been the same, and the solution has also always been the same. And while these people would not see the Messiah 
in their glory in their lifetime, in his glory in their lifetime, they heard about him. They knew he was coming. They knew he would arrive. And you and I, thousands of years later, get to look back at these words and realize God did what he said he was going to do. So a little bit of context here. We see he's prophesying, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Can you uh, put that uh, map graphic up? This I stole from a Bible project video, and it is awesome. So we got to remember, at this time, the kingdom of Israel is split in two. There's a northern kingdom, and there's a southern kingdom. Tribes, come on, you know this. Is this a part of the dance? Is it part of it? The part of the walkthrough. Well, it's kind of like a dance. Aren't there like motions and stuff? Okay, is it a part of the walkthrough? What's the motion for it? Jacob, where's, what's the split kingdom motion? Where's Jacob Hutchin? Divided kingdom. Okay, so the kingdom is divided as we've learned in middle school. There is a northern kingdom which contains the capital city of Samaria. There's a southern kingdom of Judah which has Jerusalem. And uh, this is important because Micah is prophesying about both of these kingdoms. And his uh, ministry is spanning over 80, or excuse me, over 70 years under three different kings. Um, Jotham feared God. He's a king who feared the Lord and served him. Ahaz, not so much. Didn't really love following God's rules. Didn't really love being a good king. And um, he would face consequences for that. Hezekiah rejects his father Ahaz and decides to follow the Lord again. So Micah is prophesying in a season, in a time, 700 plus years before Christ to these kingdoms about what he is seeing. Why is it so important to start off with a little bit of like history? You're like, oh, right, history class, right? Um, because context is so crucial for our understanding of scripture. Um, Many people, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but so I'm going, so I'm going to a baseball game on Friday. I'm going to go to the Mariners game. Yeah, I'm excited for it. But what I'm not excited for is every time I walk into a sta- the stadium, there is this guy, this person who has a sign and like his own mobile like like equipment to like shout at people on the sidewalk that like God hates them and that they're going to go to hell. And I don't really like get along with that guy very much, like as you can imagine for a few different reasons. And some of these verses and some of these things, maybe you've heard somebody preach uh, fiery, passionate sermons about God's judgment that's coming directly for you. Uh, Maybe you've heard Uh, stories where you've opened up the Bible for yourself and you've seen stories of prophecies of old and you've taken them to see God as angry as God as um, somebody who is going to inflict judgment upon his people. And it's really important that we read verses like this and understand what is happening. Um, The Bible has universal truths, but specific listeners. Uh, The Bible contains universal truths for every single one of us, but every single verse in Scripture was written to a specific group at a specific time. And as none of us were born in Jerusalem or Samaria or the northern or southern kingdom 2,700 years ago, we know that there's certain contextualization that needs to happen here where we understand these uh, prophecies. Not only many of them have been fulfilled, um, but these prophecies are for this specific generation and generations. But even in the midst of that, there's biblical truth 
that always pop out at us. That's what we got to do when we read through the Old Testament. A little bit of backstory, but it is important. I don't want you to open up the Bible and be like, I don't get any of this. I'm just going to go read Philippians again. Philippians is a great book, but there's 66 books. There's thousands of words that God wants to communicate with you directly. So this is what he's doing. He's preaching against those who have uh, strayed away from the Lord. So both kingdoms being addressed along with their many, many cities, false prophets, false teachers, evil landowners, oppressors of the poor are all being called out in this short prophecy. But no matter how chaotic it seems, no matter how dark it seems in this moment, there is glimmers of hope all throughout this beautiful book. Look at verse two. It says, hear you peoples, all of you, Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down on a steep Place. This is how Micah begins his uh, prophecy. These are words directly from a holy God. These are words from a holy God. Again, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah. We have to remember before the Lord fulfills what he does on the cross, what Jesus fulfills on the cross, and before the Holy Spirit arrives in Acts chapter 2, God's Spirit did not live inside of his people. God's Spirit was represented by many things, by a pillar of fire, um, by smoke. Uh, The word of the Lord, or excuse me, the Spirit of the Lord um, hovers over the water. So we see there's like some like physical evidence of the spirit and some not physical evidence of the spirit all throughout the Bible. It's only until Acts chapter two where God's temple is actually in us now. It's absolutely crazy. So when you read passages where David's like, Lord, I just, you know, don't remove your spirit from me. He meant that like he did not want God's spirit to go away from him. We don't have to pray prayers like that. But the word of the Lord came to Micah, which means that God is directly speaking through Micah. He is, every word that Micah says and speaks is from God himself. Um, Micah would have probably had hundreds and hundreds of sermons. Um, this is not potentially all that he says, but um, all of, everything that he did say, even the things that weren't recorded, were directly from the Lord himself. And I don't know if the Holy Spirit's ever convicted you when you are sinning, but that moment should lead us to repentance. But for some people, they didn't want to hear what God had to say. And um, Micah, of course, would uh, face that in his life. But these are words from a holy God. Uh, The imagery here is intense. The language here is intense. Why is Micah coming like, guns ablazing, right out, saying all these things. The Lord is coming from his holy place and will be a witness against you uh, because he's speaking to people who aren't listening to God. He is trying to get a hold of hearts that are completely hardened. He's trying to uh, bring hope in the midst of a chaotic world. He's trying to get a hold of people who are spiritually asleep, and have nothing to listen to. 
He says, hear you, all of you, pay attention, the whole earth, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. There's this imagery of God from his holy temple. Um, what happens when the Lord comes to earth in this prophecy? Uh, what happens when the Lord comes to earth in this prophecy? The mountains will melt under him. I don't know if you've, if, like, just imagine you go to Mount Rainier and you see, and maybe you've been hiking in Mount Rainier National Park. Just imagine that mountain that you're seeing in front of you just melt like water. Uh, that's the impact that God has. That's how holy he is. Like wax before the fire, the valleys will split open. So this is very high imagery of God. And you and I have to remember that God's first attribute is holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Uh, yes, I believe God is a lot of things. I believe that he is loving. I believe that he is slow to anger. I believe these things that the entire scriptures tell us about. But God is holy. What do we mean by that? I think we get ourselves into some bad theology when we don't put that attribute at the top of our ways to describe God. Um, that's what I think. I think that when we start our theology with something else, we end up in different places. Um, God is holy. And when we don't recognize that, we put expectations on God rather than him revealing himself to us. Um, when we look through the Old Testament, there's a book called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, which we'll quote. It'll be a quote up here soon. Um, not right now, but it'll be soon. The holiness of God offends us. Uh, the holiness of God offends us because we're sinners. We think that God should be exactly like we picture in our minds, but the scriptures reveal to us exactly who God is, and he is holy. Um, God isn't like the best version of the best person that you know. Um, like think of the godliest person ever and they're just like a little bit better than that. Like that's who God is. Um, God is on an entirely different um, wavelength of our understanding. Um, his holiness doesn't know our human limitations. God is so far, he is so separate. He is so far removed from this world that there's actually a little bit of a problem there because we are not that way. We need someone to fill the gap. And you think you guys know where I'm going with this. But God is holy. And that's where Micah starts. He says, listen, the whole world, listen to me. Behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Now, you might read that and, and think forward a little bit to Christ and what he does and be encouraged. But look again at verse 2. It says, let the Lord God be a witness against you. I don't know if you've um, ever had to kind of fend for yourself or defend yourself in any certain situation. I remember once um, I'd gotten my license maybe, no, this was in college. I had my license for a few years. But um, in Virginia, there's lots of hills similar to here. So when I was driving around Virginia, I had a very old stick shift Jeep Wrangler which I would just put in neutral and just like kind of cruise down hills. And if you've ever done that, any of the leaders are like high schoolers in the room, you know that maybe go a little bit faster than you should. One night I was driving home from the movies and it was like 1130 at night and I was cruising down this hill and at the very bottom of the hill, conveniently, I see a car 
behind bushes. And I'm like, that's not a police officer, right? Surely it's just some guy hiding behind bushes in an American-made SUV. Surely they have red and blue lights and they're not a police, so I get pulled over. And um, I get pulled over and I get a ticket and I get a court date and I go to court because I think I had to. I think I was supposed to at that age. I think you like legally have to, or I don't remember what the situation was, but I go to court. Um, I come in with some documents that say my, radar, my uh, speedometer was off, which it was, and so I was just going to try and defend myself a little bit. And I've also heard if the police officer doesn't show up at court, you don't get the ticket. So I was like, maybe he won't show up. He showed up that day, and I was like, no, okay. Um, so I walk in, and I like put on like a tie and stuff, right? I'm all like official. And they're, they're cranking through these things, right? Your tax dollars at work. So they're trying to get in, you know, but everyone has the right to defend themselves. So I go up, I represent myself. And um, I am, was like, sir, my speedometer was off by three and a half miles per hour. And I give him the papers and he, like, look, the judge looks through it and he's like, okay. And then he calls the witness against me, which is the police officer. And he was like, okay. Let's say we subtract those three and a half miles an hour. You were still going 12 and a half miles an hour over the speed limit. And I was like, that is true. <laughs> and I got the ticket and I did not get out of it. I didn't go to jail, which was nice. But uh, in that moment, I was like, maybe I can. And then there's this witness against me with um, verifiable evidence that I had broken a law and I was in trouble. Uh, what happens when God is a witness against you? Um, what happens when a God who sees everything that has ever happened because he made the world and he's omnipresent um, is a witness against you? Uh, what happens when you stand before him as the judge and the witness? Uh, it's not going to be good. There's going to be some things that you're not proud of. There's going to be some words that you said that you wish you could take back. There's going to be some um, attitudes that you held in your heart that no one knew about but God. There's going to be uh, things done behind closed doors that you wish you could forget that God knows. So what do we do in the presence of a holy God? Micah continues here. So first we see uh, words from a holy God, and then we see why. God is a witness against these people. Verse five, it says, all this, all this for the transgressions of Jacob. All of this language, all of this prophecy, for one reason, right there, verse five, for the transgressions of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And, those, and what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Or again, think of the two uh, divided, the divided kingdoms here. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All of her carved images shall be beaten into pieces. All of her wages shall be burned with fire. And all of her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. These are the consequences for a rebellious people. 
So the words of a holy God are going out among the people, and these are the consequences for rebellious people. The northern kingdom will be destroyed, is what Micah says. It will be turned into a heap, a pile of rubble um, for planting a vineyard, right? You can't have lots of things around if you're trying to plant vineyards. It needs to be level, it needs to be flat. And that's what Micah says is going to happen here. Verse five is the key verse in this passage. All of this for the transgressions of Jacob. This is what happens when people that are made in God's image embrace objects that they view as God's. This is what happens, chaos and consequences. We're made in God's image, but when we worship things that are here on earth that don't matter as much as God's, as God, we become fools and we will only invite destruction into our lives. Idolatry is anything that takes our affections or trust more than God. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is anything that takes our affections or trust away from God into something else, right? You might not be like constructing like an Asherah pole to like ball. That's great. Don't do that if you are. Please don't. That would be awful. Um, you might not be doing that. But you and I idolize things all the time. You and I find more value in the people around us. Uh, you and I find more hope and joy in our future plans. Uh, you and I can idolize so much. It's a person. It's a picture of who we can be one day. It is uh, an idea of a perfect life. We can bring all of these things that we see here on earth, and we can construct little idols in our hearts because our hearts are made to worship. It's what you were made to do. It's how God designed you. It's why that at the end of the day, nothing satisfies like God. All of those idols will never satisfy you. And in fact, God is seeking to destroy them. And there's evidence here that the people of God have abandoned him, have run away and said, we're gonna do what we're thinking we're gonna do, God, but we'd still like you to bless us, right? We still like being Abraham's sons. We still like the land that you gave us. And there's a tension point here where God's like, not anymore. It's not gonna happen. The northern kingdom would be destroyed. That happens. We have archeological evidence to prove that this is destroyed. In the ministry of Micah, nearly 40 years later, after his first initial prophecy, the northern kingdom is destroyed. God did not lie when he said, all of her carved images shall be beaten into pieces. All of her wages shall be burned in fire, and her idols I will lay waste. God didn't lie. These things happen. They substituted the glory of God for the images of idols, carved things. And God is like never cool with that, ever. Like not once in scripture, he's like, all right, you can have this other God, fine. I know everyone else is worshiping Baal these days. I get it. Go for it. Uh, God never says that. God never does that because it's not in his being, because he's holy. He's separate. But what these people are doing, what they're doing in this exact moment is they're putting all of their confidence in the fact that they're sons of Abraham. 
Right? God made a covenant with Abraham. God was like, you're going to bless us no matter what. You're going to like make my enemies destroyed. That's going to be great. I'm going to just like do whatever I want. Um, God establishes his covenant with man. Yes, that's completely true. But there's qualifiers on the covenant. We have to keep our other end. Or they had to keep their other end, excuse me. And they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They never were able to. The book of Exodus, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive God's covenant. And Moses comes down the hill and they're already worshiping a golden calf. And he smashes this covenant, has to get another one in a few chapters. Uh, they didn't keep it from the start. I think a lot of us read passages like this and say, like, yikes. Was God having a like, rough couple of millennia there? Like, was God in a bad mood? Did God just get really chill with Jesus and like change all of this doom and gloom? No, God kept his covenant. It would be unfair. It would be, but he told them what they needed to do. He says, you'll have no carved images. There will be no other gods. There will be none of it. And if you do that, I will keep you safe. I will protect you. And they didn't do it. They didn't meet God's standard of holiness. And so he allows them to face the consequences of destruction. He allowed them to face the consequences of their own destruction. We see this early on also in the book of Leviticus. And you can, you can uh, throw that up there. Leviticus 26 God says, you shall make, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or a pillar that you shall not set up a figured stone in your land and bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence in my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Look at this word in verse 3. So if you're like mad at God for what he's saying, if you're like nervous, here's what he says. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments, and you do them, if those things happen, then I will give you rains in the season, and your land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the same time of the grape of harvest, and the grape of harvest shall last to the time of sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. All that God will do if you keep my statutes, if you keep my commandments, and do them. Major fail didn't work out. So what do we do because of this? Before we make fun of the Israelites for worshiping golden calves, we have to look in the mirror and understand that we are prone to the same exact rebellion. We are prone to wander away from God. We can get angry. We can sit here and say, 
God was being harsh, but we have to address verses like Leviticus 26. We must see what God had said in order to receive blessings. Follow my statutes and you will be blessed. Ignore them and you will face consequences. There's this quote um, by R.C. Sproul, and it's a long one, but I want to read it. And it's, a, it's addressing this tension of the love of Christ and the love that we see in the New Testament and verses like this, where we are grasping with the holiness of God and we must address the tension. It's not uh, sanctifying or good to just ignore it. We must address these verses. And R.C. Sproul does this in a brilliant way. It's the middle of his book. This is like kind of the culmination of his thesis here. And he says, he is, talking about God, he is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become more bold in our sin. We delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or he is powerless to punish us. Far from being a history of a harsh God, the Old Testament is a record of a God who is patient to the extreme. The Old Testament is the history of of a persistently hard-necked people who rebel time and time again against their God. The people become slaves in a foreign land. They cry out to God. God heard their groans and moved towards them to redeem them. He parted the Red Sea to let them out of bondage. They responded by worshiping a gold cow. And that's what we do too. That's what happens. God is holy, and we're shocked when he acts in holiness, but we can't be. So what's the solution to this? There is good news, I promise you. What's the solution? Well, here's what Micah says he's going to do about it. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Um, this is mourning the incurable wound, 8 through 16. Uh, this is what Micah is doing. He is mourning that this is where the Israelites have come. He is saddened by the reality of sin. I think some of us, like to think that because we're Christians, um, we're better than everyone else, and other people who are stuck in sin like, are just going to get what's coming to them. Um, that's not what Micah does here. He is weeping. Uh, that's the natural response to sinfulness, is mourning and weeping. He says he's going to lament like the jackals, which doesn't sound great. Um, I don't know what an ostrich mourns like, but I can't imagine it's a good sound. For her, her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. The next few verses, kind of clever. Micah's going to call out cities and towns 
in both the northern and southern tribe, or northern and southern kingdom. He's going to call them out, and in the original language, every single one of them is actually a pun, but when you translate it to English, you're like, all these words are different. So I'm going to read it, and we're going to put the first slide up, which is um, show that like chart. This is really cool. I want you to read along with me. Um, so this is the name of the city, the meaning or the sound of what it is in the original language, and the pun that Mike is telling. Who says God doesn't have a sense of humor, right? Even in his declaring of the judgment, he's trying to, like, he's trying to get people's attention, and he uses all these different ways throughout Scripture. It's awesome and scary. This is what he says. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not all Beth Le'eraph. Roll yourselves in the dust. Okay, so the word there, that city, um, it means house of dust in the translation. And he's saying, that's the name? You guys are going to roll in the dust. All right, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and same. So it means pleasant and beautiful. But in this, he's saying nakedness and shame will come to the city that used to mean pleasant and beautiful. Okay, that's where he's going with the rest of it. Inhabitants of Zanan, do not come out. Lamentation of Bethesel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down for the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds and the chariots, inhabitants of Latish. And in the beginning of sin, it is to the daughter of Zion. For if you were found, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel, therefore you shall have given parting gifts to Morshethgain, and the houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marshalah. In glory of Israel shall come to you, Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is the first chapter of Micah. And you're like, isn't there like hope in this chaos? It's scattered throughout it, but this is the first chapter. And this is important for us to address. When God's people rebel, they will face consequences. When God's people rebel, they will face the consequences of their own sin. And this is the natural response to mourning, or the incurable wound, which is mourning, sadness. So where's the hope in this? It brings us to a tense moment where we think to ourselves, what can be done about my sin? What can be done about the sin that I harbor in my own heart? If this is how seriously God takes sin, and he does follow up on his promise. The northern kingdom is destroyed. That last verse there, for they shall go from you into exile. The Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom. The Babylonians come in, and they take the people into exile. It's important to remember context. This isn't a one-to-one promise for you and me. Um, This is something that God did. This is something that happened. This is something that past tense consequences 
were faced, but the theological truth is still there, that every one of us has an incurable wound. Verse 9 says, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. That's verse 9. Verse 12 says this, because disaster has come down from the Lord. That's what it says, to the gate of Jerusalem. Two references there, to the gate of Jerusalem. And it's disaster. Sin has so encroached in the city that God in his holiness allows the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom and they allow the te- he allows the temple to be destroyed and for the Babylonians to bring the people into exile just a couple hundred years later. This is what God allows because of his holiness. But I was so struck by this. The gates of Jerusalem and the holiness of God that is represented here as disaster, as God brings judgment, again, past tense, upon his people. But God would do something different 700 years after this. God wouldn't change his character. God wouldn't change his mind. God would bring a solution to the sin that so easily entangles all of us. And it is true that God did allow destruction to fall upon his kingdoms through the gates of Jerusalem. But 700 years later, there's the solution to sin that also walks through the gates of Jerusalem. This is from John chapter 12. This is the story that we think of when we think of Palm Sunday. The next day, the large crowd, this is in the future, this is Jesus here on earth, God among all of us. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Right? Geographic locations kind of mean something in the Old Testament. So they took branches and palm trees and went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. For the Lord is coming out of his place and will tread upon the high places of earth. God would do that through Jesus. Jesus would come to tread upon the high places of earth among you and me. You see, we like to think that God just kind of forgets God about all this, and Jesus is here, and we're like, cool, but the wrath of God was satisfied through the sacrifice of this man, Jesus. The wrath that is deserved for your sin, the judgment that is deserved for your sin wasn't forgotten, it was paid for, and we have the receipt through Christ. God would do something different. He wouldn't change his character, but he would enact the plan that he had all along to let the gates of Jerusalem see a savior, to allow them to enter him to enter through this gate, only to be pushed out a few days later and sacrificed on the cross for all of us. 
That is what God is doing in this story. That is our hope in the midst of this chaos, of this mess, of this weight. The Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And if you you believe in that man for your salvation, you will never see the judgment of God. You will plead Christ on the final day of judgment and you will never face those consequences. It is amazing grace that sets us free. Yes, there is no, there is a tension, but there is no discrepancy in the God of the Old Testament of Micah and Jesus himself and the flesh. There is a one God and he exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's been consistent all throughout every single 66 books of this page. And God would enact a solution to the sin. And these words should strike us. Why are, we pre- why are we preaching through this? Because we need reverence of God. We need a picture of his holiness. We need to be reminded of the intense debt that was owed. We need to remind ourselves of who God is all throughout time. This is who he is. And yes, he allowed his savior to come to the gates of Jerusalem. He was sacrificed for you and me. And if you believe in him and confess him as Lord, you will never face judgment. That is hope for you and me today. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We know that these words are from you. Um, I pray that you would remind us that um, when we see verses like this, you did, um, you did follow through with them. You did follow through with these as, as, um, as reverent as we can be when we read them and as sobering as it is to recognize that you did allow these generations to see destruction, God. I pray that you would remind us that sin is the solution and you, or excuse me, sin is the uh, issue and you are the solution, God. I'm thankful that you did send your son to come and dwell among us, to leave your holy place in heaven and to dwell among us, God. I pray for the person in the room right now that is, um, just been going throughout the motions and going throughout life and recognizing that and believing that there will be no consequences for what I'm doing or God is all loving. I pray that this would be a sobering reminder that as you are patient, as you are kind, you are also holy. God, I pray that we would be more thankful as we sing these songs, as we sing to your name, that you paid the penalty. We couldn't do it ourselves, so you had to send a savior. God, we're so thankful that we we exist when we do. As Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah all could just dream. They could just see what you gave them and what you told them and they could just speak of it. God, I'm thankful that we can look back and say, this is when it happened. This is where God fulfilled these promises. And this is where the forgiveness of my sin and my debt falls. Help us not to be um, just ignore that or not be reverent of that fact, God. Help us to worship you because of it. We love you, God. I pray for us as we open up this, this letter every, every week for the next few weeks. God, be with us. Allow your truth to reign. Pray all this. In Jesus' name, amen.